Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Because I was, I was so, I was trying to be perfect as a player. And he basically said, like, that's selfish. The team's not asking you to be perfect. Like, we, we just want you to give your best every, every play. When you try to control and be perfect, you're just being selfish. You're trying to, it's for you. But it's not for us because we're not asking you to do that. So in the end, it's developing systems to get yourself out of the way. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Hello, hello, and welcome back to RealPod. You are in for something really, really, really wild today because very few humans have ever accomplished what our guest today has accomplished. Our guest today is Reed Pretty. He's a professional volleyball player and he competed in four Olympic games, four Olympic games. I will say it again. So for 16 years, Reed was at the highest level, the best in the world that you could be as a volleyball player. So most Olympians, I mean, you, you would think go to one Olympic game. That's like the peak of your life. Maybe you go to two. Reed Pretty competed in four Olympic games and won the gold medal in 2008 in Beijing. So he is an incredible athlete. And today Reed's going to share with us all that he's kind of learned in his experience, the biggest takeaways that he's had, what separates the best in the world from just great players. And also he did struggle with confidence and he had kind of an unconventional path in kind of discovering himself as a player. So we're going to learn all about that today. I'm so excited. It's an honor to have an athlete like Reed share his wisdom with us. So I hope you're excited and let's gear up because right now we're about to hear from Reed Pretty. Reed Pretty, thank you so much for joining me today. It is an honor as a volleyball player also to be graced um, by your presence just because you're such an incredible human being as an Olympian and all of your accomplishments. So thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. I know that you are extremely successful. You have so many different experiences on some of the most high intensity pressure filled stages in the world. And I want to kind of pick your brain today and get your wisdom um, as an athlete on how you've thrived in those environments. So diving in 
and I think this is the the question most people want to know: What separates the best in the world from those who just barely miss the mark? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So um, I think there's a lot of layers to it. Um, you know, I think it starts with to, to me being clutch means that you're able to perform, you're able to concentrate. That's all it is. You're able to concentrate under pressure. Um, and that could be pressure from 10,000 people, 20,000, 60,000 people, or, or like 100. You know, like there's weird pressure when you're in an empty gym to perform. So are you able to, to be where you are when you're there? and do all the things that you're capable of doing. Uh, I think at the end of the day, we all just wanna know that when given the shot, we were able to play to the best of our ability. Uh, there's this very interesting phenomenon that happens, uh, I think in all of our lives, like when we don't engage in an activity in a while, we, we approach it uh, and then we're really good at it in, on day one because we're not hampered with controlling the situation. So for me, let's say I haven't surfed in six years, I go out there and all of a sudden, like I'm catching waves, I'm doing things that I didn't even anticipate doing, I'm having all this fun. And then day two, I come back out and I'm already like, I already have this narrative in my head that says that like, okay, like when I'm back in that spot, I'm gonna do this thing or, you know, on the golf course or in volleyball. Um, and so how do you get yourself out of the way, first of all? To, to do the things that you know you're capable of doing. Uh, so I think it comes down to, uh, first, that's just what's happening. So when people say that, like, hey, Michael Jordan's clutch, like Michael Jordan just had an ability to concentrate when most other people couldn't. And, uh, you know, with all the things that he had on top of him. So I think, though, if, we, if that's the end goal, then if we, if we back up to the beginning, I think it really comes down to um, doing some foundational soul searching to really be comfortable in your own skin. And, uh, you know, that is starting with your why, uh, that is understanding your driving force and understanding why you're engaging in the activity in the first place. Because no doubt, if you don't do those things, when you hit pressure, you will be one of the ones that are just outside of, you know, the circle. Um, because we all hit obstacles. It's inevitable. It's, it's part of, it's not even just a rite of passage. It's like the way. Like, how do you get to be great? You go through all of these failures and you keep becoming stronger. There's this book by Nassim um, Talib, Anti-Fragile. And I love his concept of anti-fragile. Uh, it's a word that he made up that basically says that that like the opposite of fragile is not robust it, because robust means like you could throw it on the ground and it doesn't break. The opposite of fragility is that when it breaks, it actually is, is comes back stronger. And I think that's such a better example of the human plight, the human experience is we're not just trying to be so um, robust and so strong that we're able to just, you know, just plow through life. It's that when we are broken, when we do break, when we do come up short, uh, we're able to, you know, at least have the structure and systems of support around us to where we, we, we come back stronger. There's resilience. Um, and so 
you know, the number one question I get is like, how, how did you have, how did you go to four Olympic games? Like, and it's, it's, it's a great question because um, it's pre-assuming that, that that's, that probably shouldn't have happened. And I agree with them when they ask that. I don't uh, think, we all think it should have happened, but it's incredible to think over 16 years, you were the best in the world. And that, I mean, maybe you can tell me if it wavered and there were any like cuts or, you know, uh, training seasons where you thought you were on the fence, but looking back at it as a whole, it's like for 16, for over a decade, you maintained a level of play that some people cannot even get to for one year. Yeah. And the, what, what I would say is that I just have a compulsion to improve. Uh, and what I noticed was that what uh, the, the number one marker that was there for people that stayed longer than others was the ability to adapt or learn. That was it. Um, there were so many very gifted athletes that came into that environment that had a great package of skills that worked really well up to that day, right? And it might've even worked for that first year because they're an unknown, nobody's scouting them or whatever, you know, like that freshman year sort of I'm coming in and um, I've got this one shot that's really hard to stop. But in year two professionally, undoubtedly the world will know exactly what you're great at and they're gonna be really good at taking that away. So. The real indicator is, is at that moment, that, that sophomore year, are you able to develop a new go-to or two new go-tos? Uh, and so that sort of like learning loop is what needs to happen again and again and again. And so you constantly just keep evolving and getting better. And I think that that was longevity. It wasn't uh, anything other than a relentless curiosity to understand my outer limits that it was like insatiable. It was almost like an addiction. Like I just, that's what drove me was how good can I get? And, and once I think at any level I thrived, I like to thrill seek. So I, to me, that was thrilling to be on the outer edges of my own ability. Like I'm playing above my grade, you know, like I'm in environments that are pressing me. I can't get away with, average I have to keep pressing like that's that was thrilling to me um and in the in the, those were my best environments um in terms of uh joy and fulfillment the environments that I was on like I was on a team that was by all accounts the Yankees of volleyball and uh by year two it was like w winning was the expectation and that was not thrilling you know, even though we were the best team in the world, it was not a thrilling environment. I, I'd much rather be the, you know, three years prior where oh we're the scrappers and we're just yeah. trying to stay in the game. You mentioned being clutch. Is this something that you think a person is born with or could one become clutch? And if so, how do you even train that, that ability? That's a great question. And it's absolutely a skill that can be learned. So it's not, you're not born with it. Um, we all have different dispositions towards concentration. Um, we know that there's a spectrum. It's not just one or the other. So, so the question really becomes is, is how do I keep inching my way closer towards uh, being able to hyper-focus and, and perform? 
And so the things that you can, there's all sorts of things that you can do. So I've had coaches that have helped us become more aware. We do it through breathing, breathing exercises and concentration. How long can we, it's kind of like holding your breath. You know, when, when you start to try to hold your breath longer underwater, you, you start with 30 seconds and it goes to 45. Like literally, if you just kind of train, like how long can I concentrate? So we would sit as a team and we would focus on our breath because that was just a singular, singular point of focus. And we would breathe in through our nose and then we would exhale. And, you know, the coach would lead us through like, you know, you hear the ball bouncing, but like bring it back to your breath. Like, where are you feeling it? I love how you mentioned concentration and it's something that I feel like we are aware of as athletes, but to have it be put into such a concrete um, sentence, it's like, yes, regardless of if you have 300 people there, can you concentrate on this serve receive or this moment? Or conversely, if there's no one in the gym, can you concentrate instead of getting complacent and getting lazy? But then my, my follow-up question there is, what about concentration versus your flow state because when i think i'm in a flow state i'm not really thinking i'm just i'm fully present and i'm doing would you say that that is an aspect of concentration or is what's the difference between the two you know i uh, uh, i don't want to speak out of turn so i can only speak according to my experience but i know that there's lots of people that talk about flow state and to me it's when you talk about flow state that was, I'm way too hyper-controlling to, to need to find a space to where I'm not thinking. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I, I believe that I was at my best when I was totally present. So there was no, I had no expectation of how the future should go. And I wasn't worried about the past, what just happened. I was only right here, right now. And there's certainly moments in my career, I would say like your peak where your physicality match like your acuity mentally and you're able to just perform like maybe in those moments the game was a lot easier um but as I got older it wasn't like I was thinking less I was just thinking about the right things and um it always if I was chasing flow for me personally it felt like I was trying to attain something that I didn't have yet versus yeah, I'm just would, right here right now. I would agree. It's like when you're trying to meditate and you're thinking so badly about getting into that place of meditation where you're not thinking that you're never going to get there because you're trying. Similarly with flow, I found that the games I wasn't thinking about it, I'd be like, oh my gosh, like I got there. Um, mm-hmm. But when I concentrate, you know, I don't, that to me is not my portal to, to flow state. However, I do agree that to be clutch I guess I think with flow state, maybe you are, you are concentrated, but it's so natural in that moment that you're not actively thinking about concentrating. You just are. Would mm-hmm. you think about that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would, I would go, I would go further and just say that you have let go of unnecessary expectations or unearned expectations. Um, because when expectations are unmet, that's when we all have emotional problems, right? Like, I'm in a relationship and I'm expecting something and it's unmet. Now I feel offense. Um, And it's the same in our minds as it relates to performance. If I have an expectation of how something should go uh, and it's unmet, sometimes we can go, that could be so emotionally um, 
impactful that it's hard for us to rein it back in. Uh, in the same way, if we're overly focused on what just took place without just taking like the information that, that just had like player A did this, player B did this, player C did this. And really all that really matters is that like this one bit of information, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to file that, but the other parts I'm just going to let go. Um, that's when we're sort of in that space that is right here, right now, we have more bandwidth to actually perceive what's taking place and try to problem solve. Cause that's what's happening. You know, like in a flow state too, when, when, um, and we've had all sorts of people come into the gym and, and talk to us about stuff, but I just find, I, I just, I'm looking for tactile. Like, um, it's like, it's like you said about meditation. Like, am I, am I there? Am I thinking about, you know, am I in the right spot? Am I levitating yet? You know, versus just like, am I just right here right now? Have I let go of expectations? And to give you an example, I don't know how many golfers you have in your audience, but uh, well, it's funny your tribe. You said that. So my brother is on the Corn Ferry Tour. I'm right there with Yeah. All right. So in golf, uh, I was starting to piece together some major blocks. And I played on a Friday night. This was like 10 days ago. I played on a Friday night. And uh, I couldn't miss. I was actually hitting where I was aiming, and it was really exciting. So the next morning, my friend and I were going to go out. And, you know, those 10 hours, 12 hours, I built up so much expectation. Like, I, I was certain that I was going to blow away my previous, you know, whatever. So I went totally from process-oriented to result-driven, and I got overly um, – I had these expectations. So when on the first tee, I hit the first ball out of bounds, all of a sudden, there's holes start getting poked in. So I use that as an example. I literally got to a place where me, four-time Olympian, mindset course that I wrote myself, like spiraled. I could not yeah. bring it back in. I was hammering my club in the ground. Like I was just, and that's, that's what expectation can do. When it creeps in, when you least expect it, it is a devastating enemy. I love the whole mindful, very philosophical, very optimistic approach you seem to have, you know, to sport into the game that we're that we've discussed so far. However, this could not have always been correct. Like you learned this through time, you learned this from mentors. Right. So if we're rewinding to, I don't know, early days, or even if this, even if you didn't know this, maybe your first year in that national gym. Had you ever experienced issues with confidence and belief in yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, I was never the most confident uh, person or player. And um, I remember, let's see, I mean, even in, even in college, um, let's see, the, so the way, I would, the way I would answer that question is there were several moments in my life where other people believed for me. And I was able to trade on their belief, but I was able to you know, kind of stay in the game long enough to start recognizing, well, like, gosh, enough of these people that I respect are saying these things or believing these things, like maybe I should believe them too. So I certainly was not a, um, a, a person in high school and college that was just like, this is where I'm headed and, and it's gonna be great. Um, but I was really competitive. So I had insecurity, but I was really competitive. And what I found was, that when I started to compare the two systems, if they're, if, you, if they're internal drives, how we think about ourselves and then our desire to win, I, I started to recognize that like, man, my desire to win can, trumps my thoughts about myself. 
So I was able to start to learn how to, how to channel my competitive drive when I started to get those thoughts of insecurity, because those are just thoughts, right? They're not truths. They're not, you know, they're just internal. Um, they're, they're your self dialogue, but I would just start to channel and just remind myself, like, what am I doing? Why am I here? Why am I in this match? Why am I in this situation? And I would start to like almost drum up that like fighter spirit and that would overcome. Um, but I had some significant losses. I mean, that's my story is that I didn't make the Olympic team in 2000. I didn't win a medal in 2004. And those were two very devastating moments. And so the first one, after the first loss in uh, 2000, so I was there with the team. I had no idea you could be a professional volleyball player. So I'm like right out of college. I'm with the team. I'm being told that like, hey, there's a chance you can make this, this last roster, this last spot in the roster. And I see the entire nation like zero in on the Olympics. I see all the free gear, all the media, and like all this stuff every day is like this Disneyland experience all around volleyball and guys are buying houses and talking about the stock market. It was just like mind blowing to me. And then I ended up getting cut, but I was on the bus with the team heading to the airport and they were going to Sydney. I was going back home. So that was my first moment where I said, look, whatever it took for those guys to get where, you know, to, to be on the right side of the roster, like I'm now in. So that, that was when I was ready to sacrifice kind of like time and space so I was going to move away from my family. I was going to make decisions to, to make sacrifices, to make that a reality. And then four years later, I made the team. We get to the Olympics. We beat Greece in uh, five in the most unbelievable comeback of all time. We were down 21 to 12 in the fourth set, down two to one. So this is in wow. uh, Pideos Peace and Friendship Stadium. The Greeks are all arm in arm, like, dancing because they're like we're doing this we're going to the quarterfinal like literally the game was over and Wait, one of your go, i want to i want to pause i want to walk through this yes so it's 21 12 is there a timeout what are what is the team talking about that we are that this come let's let's dive into this comeback when yeah. you are down this far and it could be so easy to think it's over and the crowd is against you and the other team might even just be like laughing whatever it is what is the conversation like amongst you and your teammates? At that, I was, I mean, I was way immature back then. And at that point I was so emotionally and mentally fatigued that I was literally drinking Coke, like Coca-Cola in timeouts for the sugar and the caffeine. Um, our setter Loy Ball was subbed out for your fellow Trojan, Donnie Sujo. So we had a spark come off the bench and just provide sort of like, energy and pep and uh, you know we kind of go on this run and Kevin Barnett was our big star at the time uh, he played great that Olympics him and Tom Hoff so those guys uh, don't get any credit really for the 2008 team but they were really the core of the mentality shifting from it's all about me to it's all about we uh, because Kevin was the most selfish narcissistic player I'd ever seen and he went through this massive transition, got married, his house sank in Colorado Springs, and he had a bunch of physical knee problems. So he's out there doing his thing, just like crushing balls. I was just like buzzing around. Donnie Sujo was, was uh, you know, serving aces. 
And uh, we ended up extending that set. And I think that just shell-shocked him. And then we ended up winning 16-14 in the fifth. That's crazy. I got to look that up on YouTube after this. Yes. Yeah, you do. But something you keep saying, and I really want to kind of speak to this, is this idea that you shift the focus from you to something bigger than yourself. And I have my own little, like when you bring that up, the moment I think of in, in my sports career is my freshman year, I dealt with a lot of performance anxiety, very anxious, a lot of self-doubt. I walked on and then I'm playing with Sam Bricio. And so I'm just, my whole head is like, I'm not good enough to be here. Um, and yet I always was someone who in a moment of like, it's do or die, I could forget about myself and just, I want to win more than I care about like my own anxieties or insecurities. And I remember we were in an elite eight game and I just wanted to side out so badly. I cut off San Bricio and dime to pass. And after the play, I was like, what did I just do? Because something like overtook me in that moment to just win. And it was no longer about me passing well, or what seam is mine or what's my angle like. And so do you feel like in your pursuit to, making the team that following quad it was less about your stats your fitting in but more just this bigger goal ingraining yourself in a team like what was that separation like to chase something greater than yourself yeah you're absolutely right that's like the cure-all pill how do you how do you stop worrying about all the little things as you start thinking about others right uh, for me, unfortunately, it took getting married and having kids um, to start recognizing that the world doesn't revolve around me. Um, but those guys modeled it also. And I thought that was, you know, they were the elder statesmen. And it was cool to see their progression because I knew them from before. And now I'm seeing them after and they're making these other decisions. And I think it's the I think it's like we're our best as humans when we are connected to a larger purpose. Uh, and so what a great lesson that you learned through sport that the world needs, right? We need more of these types of experiences where we stop thinking about, you know, our issues and we start to think about like, well, you know, instead of my little battle, what's the war that we're trying to win here and, and how do we do this together? And it's, it's incredibly fulfilling and it's effective. Uh, so yeah, that was definitely a moment. Um, I will say, though, in that Olympics, right at that moment, I thought we were destined to win. We just did the impossible. So when I went back to the Olympic Village that night, it was like, oh, we're like, this is happening. Our Olympic gold medal moment is going to happen. We just need to, like, live out the next four days. And we get slammed by Brazil, 3-0 in the semis, slammed by Russia, 3-0 in the bronze medal. And it was just like slap in the face. Were those games where you felt like we're in a funk, we can't do anything right, or was it they're just that much better than us, we deserve to be slammed? In the end, it was that. But I think what was the thing that underpinning that was really happening was that my entitlement was being shattered. So I, I didn't know that I had it, but I think that I was expecting it to happen. And then I started to recognize that, like, wow, like 144 men's athletes are here right now. We probably all had the same dream for long enough. Uh, we all want to win. So how presumptuous it was for me to think that like this was our moment. So that's when like I just did away with that sense of destiny and was just like, this is about concentration. This is about work. This is about who can outlast whom. And so that's 
the yeah. trajectory I went. And everyone there is incredible. So you are correct. It's in that it, when, when everyone is incredible, when everyone is unbelievably great, how do you come out on top? And it's, it's literally all those little things you just mentioned. And it's wild to think about just that level of competition. How does it feel to think about you, know, you were there? Do you ever get any sense of like, that's surreal to me? Um, looking back, how did I accomplish those things? Because I can imagine for you, you're like, I mean, you, you did it. It's not easy, but it's your kind of your nature. Whereas opposed to someone like me, I'm looking at that like it's insanity. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that being there and losing, like that was devastating. And so then, then we got a new coach and, and he built this culture that was amazing, that had purpose, that had team at the center of it. And we went to win in 08. And I think that um, many people might think that like, oh, you went to the Olympics and won, like, so now you can move on and do something else. And I think the majority of us was like, that was so amazing. Like, let's go do that again. Right. So I think it's this sense of just like, whatever league you're in, don't you want to be in that last match? You know, like whether it be like, do you want to be watching it on TV or do you want to be like in it? And I found that some of the most fun that I've ever had in life was, you know, those two hours where you don't know what's going to happen. And there's only two, two teams that are playing. All the other teams are at home watching and um, you're just going for it. And I think uh, that's the thrill. You said that the biggest separation between those two cultures was the second one had purpose and it had meaning. And earlier in this podcast, you mentioned Simon Sinek. He's incredible. I love him as well. And he obviously emphasizes the why, finding your why. Was that the first time as an athlete you sat back and did that work of what is my why? Yeah, it wasn't a personal why. It was a team. It was like the team. So we wrote like a team mission statement. And I remember. Hugh McCutcheon setting us in a, in a, we canceled practice for two days, told us to meet him at a conference room at the Anaheim Hilton, because we're going to talk about him writing a mission statement. And we thought he was crazy. And I mean, we gave him so much crap during like, those two days. We did this in club, we did this in high school. Yeah. And uh, it's so funny because if you ask anybody on that team, I would say, uh, I would bet that you would hear that everybody points back to those two days as being the formative change. Uh, Cause what it did was we were not trending. We were not an up and coming team. The world was not wondering, I wonder what USA is going to be like in four years. Like none of that was happening. So for us to actually pin on paper, you know, we, the U S men's volleyball team are setting out to win the Olympic gold medal in Beijing. And this is how we're going to attack it. For us to do that, I mean, we had no right doing that. People would have laughed at us. What were it was some prescriptive. Those, what were some of those bullet points, how, how you guys were going to attack it? I think the way he led us in that conversation was like, okay, what are we good at? Um, we're good at, uh, we're scrappy. What, is, what does it mean to be an American? Well, we never give up. We're, we're team oriented. We've all played overseas and we've felt what it feels like, you know, playing overseas is like an episode of survivor. You know, if you lose, everyone's just trying not to get voted off the Island and we never engage in that. So we're always the one holding the, the, the blame. Um, so that wasn't us. So if, if 
maybe that could be a competitive advantage. Maybe, maybe that is part of us having an edge against everybody else is that we do stick together through thick and thin. We will work hard. Um, and the, a big part that our coaching staff pushed was that we were going to be students of the game and we were going to pursue mastery. And, you know, the idea of, um, this was interesting for me in a transition from beach to indoor, because one way to mitigate nerves is to become a black belt master at what you do. Uh, and so that, that, you know, if, if that would, that was part of my strategy to, I'm going to groove these skills so much that it's like a, it's like I'm fluent. It's a part of me. So maybe that's more of the flow state where it was just like, I created flow by simply putting in so much work on the fundamentals. So you're talking like thousands and thousands of repetitions so that you, like you, it's not even you needing confidence. It's from my experience. I've literally done this thousands and thousands of times that the chances of me not being able to do it are so low that that's how you work, you work to eliminate the doubt. Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, it takes a lot of time. There's no shortcuts. Um, but by the end, and I love to tell this story, you know, when I, I was recruited actually to SC as a setter and in the, um, literally they visited my house. This was going to be a big deal. Uh, I was super excited and they like called me and were just like, Hey, we got to hit the pause button here. We're going to take a look at this foreign kid, see if he passes the SATs. And it turned out to be Donnie, Donnie Sujo. So they went with him and I was just kind of like left out. And so LMU's coach was the head of SC's coach brother. So Rick McLaughlin, Jim McLaughlin. So Rick calls me up and says, Hey, uh, I know what happened over at SC. Like I want to take a look, you know, come see the campus. So he invites me to come. I sign, I go. And within two weeks, he tells me like, Hey, Reed, by the way, we have enough setters. You're not going to set. Um, you're going to be an outside hitter. And I hadn't done that yet. I'd only been. Did you a, want to do that? Or were you upset? I, um, I, I actually, that's a good question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question. I don't even know if I remember. Um, I liked setting, but this was a new, this was a new thing. This was yeah. like, but, but my passing, I had never passed. So now all of a sudden I'm in division one volleyball. Welcome to Service. <laughs> and I've never been taught how to pass. And so it was a total limiting factor. So I love to tell people that, like, I literally only played half the time my freshman year because of passing. The only reason I stayed in my sophomore year is because my coach talking about this kind of goes back to our conversation about other people believing in us. He could tell that I was getting in my own way. So he stopped practice one day, kicked a ball and said, that's it. Reed, I'm never subbing you out again. Like, if you suck, you're just going to have to deal with it. And it sounded like punitive, and, uh, and it was like the best thing I've ever heard. And I just took off, and I became like an All-American that year. Because it was so freeing, because you didn't yes. feel like your, your playing time was on the line every single move you make. And I think it's so college athletes, like, we go out there, and you're so afraid of being benched. Like, that, to me, was the, my life is over. Like, I had to literally go to therapy and, and talk about if I were to get benched or if I were to not become libero because I was so obsessed with not having myself get pulled. So, I mean, that's the dream right there, that your coach right. says, you can play terribly and I'm leaving you in. <laughs> right. And the funny part was he just knew that that was going to be the key that, that freed me up. But 
I, I love to tell people about the passing bit, that it was a limiting factor. It hurt my team. It hurt my playing ability. Uh, but it became the thing I was most known for, for 10 years internationally. So it became my distinguishing mark. So whatever's holding you back today, if confronted, faced, and worked on, could be the very thing that's separating you moving forward. And is your passing something that you put all those reps in, like we just talked about? Yes. Yeah, we, we went all in on mastery. It was about, um, we kind of took the results off the table. And it was all about becoming a master of our craft. That was the language that our staff was using. The late Carl McGowan, uh, Marv Dumphy, Doug Beal, um, Hugh McCutcheon, Rob Browning. Just such an amazing staff that all believe the same thing that that you don't just um, like you got to put in the work and you got to become an artist, a master. And I, I love that because when when you talk about I like to think of it as like a black belt in martial arts, because when you think about a black belt of jujitsu, you don't think about somebody being perfect. Do you? I mean, like is somebody who's a black belt, do you think of them as being somebody that's perfect? No. They've done it long enough that they are proficient. They have the tools that they need to be at that level. Um, and that's such a healthier way to look at it than I need to be perfect. I need my stats to be perfect. You know, that's not what, that's not how the Dan system, the Dan ranking system judges these. It's time and proficiency and competency. And I think that should give a lot of people, <clears throat> um, comfort that the game is not like nobody here is trying to be perfect and in fact Hugh McCutcheon at one point scolded me and because I was I was so I was trying to be perfect as a player and he basically said like that's selfish the team's not asking you to be perfect and so like we we just want you to give your best every every play and keep you know um you know trying to do your best but when you try to control and be perfect you're just being selfish you're trying to it's for you but it's not for us because we're not asking you to do that so for all those different reasons um i think that in the end to go back to your very first question about playing for a long time or at the top level it's trying it's developing systems to get yourself out of the way you know to get your to align mind body and heart that everything's working for you, not against you. Um, and I think that's, that's something that, we, that I take into my other areas of life and it, and it brings victories. What has that been like with golf? Because it's such a single sport, you can't shift to a we. There's no one out there but you, your clubs, and your own scorecard. So do you think that's been like the greater challenge is you don't have that team to direct energy towards? Yeah, team golf events are the most fun, fun events, but that's not really usually what's happening. Uh, and the more that I've been playing, I've noticed, you know, when I'm playing in games now, there's betting involved. All of a sudden, like the results, you know, process gets out the window and it's all about like, what are you going to score on this hole? So I've found that my strategy is to try to keep reminding myself that life is not about a golf score, but like, look at all these people I'm getting to meet on the course. And it's a real challenge for me to like keep that being the forefront because if I go into the result driven, it I'm only going to get in my own way. So so more experience based, like the experience of this incredible course, the experience of 
of getting to play and the people I'm with. So I think that's, I think that's honestly, I think a good way to view it is if you don't have that team to have that we mentality, it's okay, then let's go to the experience that you're having as a human being. And then I, I did want to ask you, you obviously sound so incredibly motivated and your career has been so long lasting. Have you ever experienced a time where it was waking up, going to the gym and uh, not really, not really feeling it today, or uh, it's been a few weeks, not feeling it. I feel like I'm in a funk. Can't get, can't get out of my head. Can't get out of this. Have you ever lacked motivation? And, and what was that time like? Yeah. Yeah. I remember definitely there's ebbs and flows, especially as much as we play, especially on the professional level. Um, the national team starts in May and it goes to about August. And so we'll be finishing our last match in August or September. And the very next, like literally we'd have like 72 hours to come back home, put things in storage. And then you're going to like pre-camp overseas and you're starting a whole new season over again. So when you do that year after year after year, I remember there were several moments, several times where I just felt bored. And it was just like, I could hit line or I could hit angle or I could hit seam. Like, is there anything else I could do? I don't care. <laughs> like, like, I, I mean, like, could I kick it? You know, I'm just kind of, kind of bored. And um, so that, that's definitely, it's definitely a thing. And I was able to, I made sure that when I reached those points, I tried to get to the end of a season and then take some time off. Um, I've been able to talk to a lot of the younger guys about that too, where you just have this feeling of like, I don't want to miss out. But like, if you're not, like what, what's the good if you just keep sticking with it without finding ways to decompress, finding healthy ways to, um, you know, be with people. I mean, it's also taxing as an athlete on how much you miss, like you miss every wedding, every birthday. Um, it's just like, you're missing life. It seems like. So I took, uh, I was able to get from some coaches, some, some permission to, take a month off here, a couple months there. And what I found was really interesting is I always came back better. Yeah. Um, and I think people don't realize that, that like when a fresh mind, a fresh body is going to win out over you thinking like, I can't miss six weeks of practice. I feel like that's something I had to learn as well. And it's this misconception that we preach in athletic culture that you have to know days off, or if, if you're not getting better today, you're getting worse. And Literally, I had to, I had to, to go in and do extra every day, get worse, get more anxious, get more depressed to realize, Hey, I actually do well when I just call it a day after practice and I show up tomorrow and I feel really rejuvenated, but it's a difficult decision to make when you're thinking about other people working, other people grinding. And then it's also hard to believe when we do hear from some great athletes that that is the way that they train. It's mm -hmm. like, but, but it's, it's a more popular way. Um, of viewing things. I even find with like my parents or people who are around athletes, but aren't athletes, they're very judgy. If you're not practicing or you're taking this day off and it's mm -hmm. like, oh, I, it. I need this day off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. So, uh, you know, um, stress plus rest equals growth. You know, it, uh, we get it. You know, if we just sat there and just did biceps every single day, the muscle would, you know, it tears and then it regrows when you rest. It doesn't regrow while you're, you're doing that. And so 
I think that especially knowing that the mindset and, and the ability to concentrate is what separates wins from losses, you know, point here, point there, that a fresh mind is, is way better than a broken down, you know, depressed mind. And, and there's been lots of athletes that have, uh, yeah, have had to pull away and, and it's on their own. It is sad though, that it is, it takes the athlete usually to say like, I've had too much. I, I need a little bit of space. But in the same way that if we, if we plan and program work to be balanced, I think we can plan rest to be balanced too. And recovery is arguably a huge aspect of becoming great. I mean, I remember um, freshman year at USC, we were number one in the country and we barely did a full practice because we were saving bodies, saving reps. It was more just like walkthroughs. And I remember thinking all these other teams probably think, oh, USC is like going hard every single day. And I was like, no, we end early every single day because mm -hmm. recovery is so important. The last thing I want to ask you is to any athletes listening who want to achieve great greatness, whether it's Olympic, Olympics, their, their max potential, the best that they can do, what is your one piece of advice that you think is crucial for that journey? One piece of advice. Um, I, I really think it boils down to, I love this statement. I've been using this lately. You're one decision away uh, because action starts with a decision, right? A commitment. And um, I think that, if you have a learner's mindset where you're okay with where you're at right now in terms of like, I'm not coming to the table with um, anything other than the commitment to stay the course. I, you know, I think it's, I think it's resilience. Uh, so I'm bringing all of this into entrepreneurial ventures right now. And I believe that 99% of the people would have quit had they been through my experience over the last three years. And so I think it just comes down to when you do the heavy lifting on the front end, who am I, what am I about? What am I trying to do? That's probably, that would be my first piece of advice would be to discover your why and to articulate your mission. Uh, like what am I setting out to do? And um, when you start from a place of clarity, then uh, you can be resilient and learning, but you're not like trying to discover your purpose along the way. You've already done the heavy lifting of who am I, what am I about, and what am I trying to do? What game am I in? Um, I think that would be a, a starting place that I would recommend. I love that though. You're one decision away. It just, it's, there's so much hope in that. There's also some fear, but there's so much hope in you're one decision away and it just goes to show how even if that that goal or that dream is years in the future today is going to affect it somehow because it's all a part of your process yeah. thank you so much reed i really appreciate everything you shared today um you're such a cool human and i'm grateful for your time yeah thank you so much Thank you so much for listening to Real Pod. If you enjoyed this episode and you enjoyed Reed, make sure you throw him a follow on Instagram. You can find him at 
read pretty r-e-i-d-p-r-i-d-d-i and if you enjoyed this podcast make sure you subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast that would be fabulous and awesome because it definitely helps get the word out of about real pod thank you again for listening i really appreciate it and if you are all the way back here at the end of the episode i want to give you something special i just got a number with community so if you want to text me yes text me i will text you back it is me the number is one 214 I want to text you. So text me. And I honestly, you guys, I'm putting it at the very end of this podcast because I feel like my real, my real homies, my real day ones will be listening to this. So please text me. one 214 I would love for you to receive my weekly text of thoughts and inspirations. Thanks again for listening to RealPod. I hope you have an amazing day.